Welcome to Building Remotely, the podcast where we talk with founders and leaders of remote companies. Together with them, we aim to uncover hidden insights that you can use when building a startup remotely. I'm your host, Sandre, the founder and CEO of SafetyWing, a Y Combinator-backed startup building a global social safety net for remote workers. Let's begin. Stress is the only way that you get out of situations. Like, that's what builds your character. That's what makes you stronger as a person. Today, I am joined by Liam Martin, founder of Time Doctor and Staff.com. Together with him today, we will talk about the struggles of managing a crisis as a remote company and his advice on how to overcome that. Welcome to the podcast, Liam. Thanks for having me. I am still blown away that I'm the crisis guy, but at least... What we've done is we've built very clear processes and procedures and operational frameworks around those types of problems. So even if I try to dislodge the problem, I effectively can't because the process is actually the management tool, not necessarily the person. Yeah, well, to kind of set the scene, I would love to take, you know, bring us into one of, you know, a dumpster fire. Okay. You know, I, I saw this tweet Recently, Andrew Warner kind of summarizing a crisis. It was like running remote conference was finally profitable. His wife was pregnant. Corona hit. Conference was canceled. He cried. He got to work. <laughs> so take us into the scene. Sure. We can take you there. Running remote, which is the conference that we run on building and scaling remote teams, was a physical conference. You know, you guys have been there. You guys were represented there. And we've been running it. We ran two successful ones in Bali, in Indonesia, which were very nice. We filled up the rooms for both of those events. And the next one was going to be in Austin, Texas, because we realized that we really wanted to talk to remote employers and founders. The majority of those people are actually located in the United States. Bali is a really beautiful place for digital nomads, as we had discussed before, but not for the people that are really building billion dollar plus companies. So we went to Austin. It was fantastically received. We were effectively going to sell out. The way that conferences work is basically about 90% of your sales happens about three months before the actual event starts, but the trajectory was on target to be able to sell out and we were making profit, which was great. And then COVID happened and we had to cancel everything. We lost a couple hundred grand during that time because there's a whole bunch of companies that owe you money, like room blocks and venue purchases and caterers and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of those companies obviously can't pay you back because they're bankrupt, uh, because the entire industry collapsed very, very quickly. And we realized the thing that we could do, like it's the classic you got lemons, make lemonade type of situation. We just said, what's the thing that we could provide that's very unique to this situation that almost no one else has a handle on, which was information on how to build and scale a remote team. We've had more founders of successful remote tech companies in one place than anywhere else in the world. So what could we do? Well, we put together an online event called Remote Aid, and we wanted to make sure that we were not profiteering in any way from the event. So we uh, gave all of the money to charity. So everything that we raised, it was on donation only. Everything just went to charity. And that was, ironically, another very stupid decision because 
everyone was asking us for sponsorship dollars. Everyone was asking to sponsor the event. And we said, you're absolutely right. I mean, you can sponsor the event, but we're just giving money away to charity, right? So just put some money in for charity. And not many people really wanted to do that. And also it was obviously emptying our bank accounts because um, you can't make money when you give it all away to charity. So we, after that, went back to a profit model. And that's been relatively stable. I think the last one we had, I think we made about $1,700. I think probably this next one that's coming up in November, we may make a little bit more money. But for us right now, we're really still focused on how can we get this information out to people as quickly as possible? Because we're seeing the biggest transfer of labor since the Industrial Revolution, and quite possibly in the history of mankind, where Pre-COVID, we had about 5.5% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. And right now, we're floating at about 45% of the U.S. workforce working remotely, which is a complete shift of labor. There are so many implications that people are not even kind of recognizing, one of them being that we discussed before. How are you actually going to insure these people when they're location independent and you can't really measure where they are? What are the legal implications of that? You know, What are the international implications of that? There's a whole bunch of stuff that we need to start to work out and educate people on. So we said, okay, we're just going to run this conference and really focus on getting that information out to people. Wow. Yes. Uh, now that is, uh, that is a crisis if there ever was one. So sort of zooming out, you know, to, you know, a level of abstraction, there's management and then there's crisis management to first kind of sketch out, you know, what makes something a crisis? When do you got to switch gears from management to crisis management? I think it actually is entirely connected to time. So whenever you have a time stressor placed upon you, uh, we had another crisis that comes to mind where we lost about a million ARR from 54 hours of downtime for Time Doctor. And that is something that quite literally every minute we were getting dozens of tickets coming in to our support portal. And we had to very quickly come up with a message for the customer base. And the reality is we don't know what's wrong. We don't know why it's broken. The person who can solve the problem is currently on a flight from Barcelona to Tokyo and will not be landing for another nine hours. And we can't solve the problem with our current dev team. And we don't know when this problem will actually get fixed. So that's the truth. And then you need to craft that truth in a way that you're not lying to your customer, that you're telling the truth, that you're upfront with them, but you're also not scaring the living shit out of them and they won't unsubscribe from your product. Because as a SaaS product, which is software as a service, our entire business model is actually, to me, a lot more egalitarian than a lot of other products on the market, which is if we don't do a good job at providing you this service, you can quit anytime you want. And obviously, as well, we charge you a slightly higher amount than you would if you purchased the product directly from us. But in exchange, you continuously get updates and you get a much more up-to-date product that we're working constantly on. But if we break that contract at any point, you can leave. And that's one of the big problems when it comes to crises like this, which is, shit, okay, this product isn't working. And how long do you think someone is going to wait to find another solution when their time tracking product doesn't track time. We actually tested that assumption. It was about between the 
the like 30 to 40 hour mark. That's where people are just like, wow, you guys really don't know what you're doing. I'm going to go find another solution. There's a certain golden hour of like, people will give you the benefit of the doubt for an hour as an example. Ah, it's not that big of an issue. And, and also too, inside of our app, it's a desktop application. So there's a caching component inside of our desktop app. The other part that we didn't know is because we were down for such a long time, we had never cached this long before. We had never tested that. I believe the longest that we had cached was 24 hours. So we had no idea whether or not that cache data would actually upload once we finally fixed everything. Thankfully it did, but we didn't actually have a clear answer on that. And so, yeah, you need to really kind of you need to fix those problems. And I remember very clearly at about three o'clock in the morning, we were going back and forth as to what statement we were going to make. And I said, listen, we need to make a statement in the next 10 minutes. We're going to make a statement in the next 10 minutes and we're going to push it to all the customers. What is that statement going to be? Here are, and I just discussed those variables with you. How do we state that? Be clear, but not fearful. And basically what we stated was, hi, this is Liam, one of the co-founders of the company. We're currently down. Here's the real situation. We very specifically explained what we believed the problem was. And then we said, we believe our timeline to solve this problem is 24 to 48 hours, but we currently do not know. You will not be charged for this time. After we get this problem solved, we will literally prorate the lost time that you have. And if you have any other questions, please let us know. And here is a link to our uptime tool, right? And it was like that message produced thousands of responses, but it stopped the tens of thousands of requests that were coming in or would have come in actually over, let's say that 54 hour period. Because as long as you're out in front of the problem as quickly as possible, and you're just honest with people, it hurts. But I would say every hour that you can't figure that out, you're probably just going to create a bigger problem for yourself. So you just need to be straight up with people as much as possible. And, and if your customers like you, right, if you've got MPS that's solid, you'll probably be able to bounce back from it. But actually we had, we had an MPS ding that took us nine months to get back to what it was pre-crash, which is just kind of you can see the impact of that and you can see it so clearly in the data that we were collecting. And it was basically just our customers lost faith in us and it took nine months to be able to earn that faith back. Mm. Wow. Okay. So now I'm really getting a handle of kind of that. I can feel that moment and it's kind of a crisis is a problem with extreme time urgency and importance kind of sounds like, and Liam's principle number one, is communicate quickly and honestly to your customers. That's that's where you begin. Yeah, but don't scare them. But don't scare them. <laughs> that's where the messaging comes in. That's where the marketing and the messaging comes in. Never lie to your customers. Tell them the truth. However, if you tell them the reason why, like there, there's actually a really good piece in Freakonomics. It's one of their books of Freakonomics. I think they've written like three or four of them. And it was about the airline industry and talking about how people get really angry when, you know, the plane isn't ready, when they've got to sit around for an extra hour, two hours, three hours to prep for the plane. And they found that people were a lot less angry if you specifically explained why the mm -hmm. plane was late. Yeah. 
So you're just like, hey, yeah, you're going to have to sit around here for an extra hour. I'm pissed off. Hey, you have to sit around here for an extra hour. Reason being, the current crew that was supposed to take over this aircraft has currently not landed. Mm -hmm. We are calling another crew that's coming in and they should be here within the next 45 minutes. Yeah. A lot less pissed off. So if you just explain it clearly to people and never, and the other thing too, is when someone is angry, particularly a customer of yours is angry and emotionally frustrated, anything that you tell them that isn't the truth and you are found out on it, it will blow up in your face. Mm. So you should never say, hey, I think that we're going to solve this in five hours, unless you know you're going to solve it in three to five hours, mm. right? Like if you think, oh, this should be done in five, this is the other thing too, it's very interesting in discussion with developers because developers are really just saying, well, I don't know when I'm going to get it solved. Mm. And you can get that answer out of them, but it just requires a very unique way of communicating and thinking like a developer, which for an executive or for someone in marketing like myself is just, you need to change your mindset a little bit, but never ever tell them, hey, we're going to solve this in five hours when you don't know. Yeah. Because five hours and five minutes pops up and wow, do you ever get an inundation of messages coming up? Because actually we were trying to fire up our servers and when we would fire up one instance, it would almost instantaneously crash because everyone was trying to log in at that point. So what we actually ended up having to do is we fired up 1% of our user base and we got them up and running. And then we got to 2%. And as the servers were warming up, like we were very slowly rolling our servers up and running. We were getting, we were basically rolling them up very slowly. And we had tried to fire them up probably four or five hours and it just wasn't working because everyone just needed to upload their data. So that's an example of something that we didn't know beforehand and that was theoretical and then it just happened live and they were like, oh shit, okay, well, we've got to actually build a piece of software now to not have people upload to the system and just fire things up very, very slowly. Yeah, no, I very much relate to that. And you know, we had our share during COVID and safe doing just like this one was we evacuate customers and that's like in the policy and wow. and that we're timing out. Right. And it was sort of this optional crisis and so much credit to co-founder Sarah, who was up several nights during this time. And it was exactly this dilemma here was we need to communicate honestly and quickly under uncertainty to our customers for them to ha- kind of had a chance to act in time, but uh, very much relate with your rule there. So second part there, you know, what about your team? How do you communicate to your employees? Are there different rules in a crisis? I think you have to do exactly the same thing and even more so with your employees. And I'd love to actually have you share some of your crises that happen at, at Safety Wing, to be completely honest with you, because I think that you could probably speak to this even better than I could. But when you, so we lose a million bucks, we lose a million ARR. Who's going to get laid off, right? Because like, got to lay somebody off, right? Because you lose a million ARR, if you're investing everything back into growth, you know, where does the hammer drop? And that's also where you can show your true leadership, which was me and Rob basically stopped getting paid 
And we completely reoriented the business to be able to cut absolutely everything but people's salaries to be able to get through the crisis. And we did. We got through. Uh, we didn't have to let anybody go. But, you know, when you lose a million ARR, because internally we share all of our metrics inside of the organization. So anyone can see all of our data, exactly how much money we're making, how we're doing, all that kind of stuff, the budgets of different departments. And so they see that just as much as everyone else. So you have to get up in front of them very quickly and you have to say, hey, listen, here's the situation. We lost this much money. I don't exactly know how we're going to get through this, but rest assured, me and Rob are the first people that are going to lose our salaries from this situation. Like it's our last option is to make those types of cuts. With that said, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we're going to do absolutely everything we can to be able to make sure that everyone is whole through this process. If you have questions, you know, please let us know. We think we can make it through this. I remember very specifically discussing that saying, you know, I don't think you guys have anything to fear, but you'll be the first person to know. And we'll let you know way beforehand, whether or not this is something that we can't get through. And a lot of people respect that. We mostly hire people now that have multiple job offers all the time. So they can jump ship at any point that they want. Hell, I have multiple job offers at any point. I could leave the company if I wanted to at any point. But the reason why I don't is because we have a clear goal inside of our company. We want to empower people to be able to work remotely all over the world, regardless of where they're from or what their background is or which school they went to. We want to really empower people that classically aren't seen as remote workers, that maybe are seen by people from San Francisco and New York as outsourced people. But, you know, when you're working from home in Mumbai, it's exactly the same as working from home in San Francisco at a coffee shop. It's just, it's a class issue. So we really want to empower everyone on planet Earth to be able to access remote work opportunities. And that is, to me, something that I would do for free, which I did <laughs> because we stopped paying ourselves to continue to operate the business. And one thing I think a lot about when, you know, internal crisis is retaining sort of positivity and optimism against the backdrop that is sinister. Uh, you know, I remember a particular moment, you know, during this COVID crisis, it was on the roof. So we have a safety wing house here in San Francisco and on the roof, there is a safety wing mm -hmm. flag, uh, <laughs> kind of like, that's cool. It's a, it's a quirky, cute thing, but it's pretty awesome actually. And I remember I was up on there and I kind of, it was during COVID, so I was in isolation. So I was walking around on the roof and kind of just thinking through, you know, what, you know, our, our next steps. And uh, I remember the flag was tangled up on the pole and I was like, oh, that's symbolic. Uh, you know, I'm going to get up <laughs> on the roof and untangle the flag. And it was a bit dangerous. And then I kind of walked down and I wrote the kind of posts that was sort of the main one that kind of like, we're now going to have a period with a lot of problems, but, you know, we can solve those problems and here's, you know, what we're doing. And, uh, sure. that was kind of like to retain the optimist, you know, both for myself. And then after I fixed it for myself, you know, for the team, um, how do you think about retaining optimism and positivity when things are falling apart? I don't know because I'm a very optimistic person. Yeah. If you want me to give you my true interpretation of that, which maybe seems a little egotistical to be completely honest with you, but I'm going to give you that version anyways. 
I'm going to succeed no matter what. Like maybe that's not true, but it is true to me. Whatever's going to happen, I'm going to figure it out. And that extreme form of like everyone that I talk to inside of the organization, they feel that from me that we're going to succeed at our goals and we're going to succeed at this mission. And I just have this extreme form of optimism. I'm always the person that's saying we could do more or, you know, the here's our conservative and liberal estimate of what our targets are for this particular project. I'm just like, why aren't we setting this higher? I know actually specifically with Igor, who is the implementer and co-organizer of Running Remote, you know, he was saying, oh, you know, maybe we could get 5,000 people to this remote aid event. And I said, no, how about we get 10,000 people? Like everyone on planet Earth wants to hear about this. And we blew his projections way out of the water because it was just like, you know, once you start to open yourself up to those types of other opportunities, my, my other philosophy too is I have a ready fire aim mentality. So with running remote, the very first event, the first thing I did is I booked the venue for a hundred grand. I didn't have any speakers. I didn't have a website. I didn't have anything. I just booked the venue and I was like, okay, now we have a timeline. We got to get a website together. We got to convince somebody to come. Like it was just the forcing function. And the other thing too is you don't have to fear failure as much. This is one of the other things that I find so frustrating. And it's not really in San Francisco, but it is to a degree, it's still there. It's like, you have to understand that failing at something is just figuring out how something doesn't work. We had this argument with regards to conferences on remote work, there were three that had been tried before running remote and all of them failed. And that was a major kind of, when I was going through my critical thinking process, the last step before I make a decision is what assumptions am I making about my conclusions? And one of my biggest assumptions was that other people wanted to learn about remote work and all of the other variables, all the other conferences that had tried had failed. So that was a big problem. That was like, wow, that's a big hole inside of my logic. These three companies have failed and and a couple of them were way bigger than ours. Why do you think we would succeed? And the only angle that we took was those conferences actually approached much more of an enterprise perspective and we approached much more of a tech startup perspective. And that did end up working. Mm. Wow. So you're kind of almost turning the concept of a crisis into almost a good thing. You look for the upside opportunity in the crisis, you use the crisis as a forcing function, and then it's the ready fire aim philosophy to act immediately. Yeah. I also think there's a, um, I think it was Peter Thiel in Zero to One discussed the story of the fighter ace. And this fighter ace was the best pilot in the U.S. military. And they were interviewing him on his philosophy with regards to how he is the best in comparison to others. And he said, I take shots that other people don't take. So I can take three shots on you before you even tried to take one shot on me. And Maybe my success rate is 30% and your success rate is 40%. 
well, I'd rather take three shots at 30% success rate than one shot at 40% success rate. And that's kind of my philosophy in a nutshell, which is let's try to make failure as cheap and as quick as humanly possible. Don't fear it. It's a way to be able to get to success. And then at that point, you know, if you're dealing with a crisis, you might as well try three or four things. I actually think one of the things that we discussed inside of our message for our, you know, our downtime was we should probably try split testing the messaging to people to be able to see what the response would be. We didn't do that because we said we don't want to necessarily, we just want to tell people the truth and like, this is our truth to us. But, you know, if you were running a much bigger, a much more serious problem, like being an insurance program for digital nomads and all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) the pandemic completely changes your reality, man, maybe I would split test that. that. That's something that, by the way, you should, I don't know if you've already done it, but you should do a podcast just on its own. Maybe after the pandemic is over about, you know, like how you guys pivoted through that, because it's an amazing accomplishment that you can do that. And the people that make it through are the ones that really build billion dollar companies. Yeah. Quite fortunately, I was really inspired actually to see how people in our team reacted through that. And now it's kind of, we're out of it, which I also wanted to actually get uh, in the sense of, you know, when you look at our graphs, you almost can't see what happened. We're kind of pre-COVID trajectory and, uh, and even better. So let's talk a little bit about getting out of the crisis. So, you know, there are some companies that, you know, they fell into crisis once and they never got out. It's just like perpetual. This is, this is the new normal now. So I suppose in order to be able to respond effectively to a crisis, you also have to have like a conclusion to the crisis where you review your lessons and kind of return to some sense of normalcy. How do you think about, you know, getting out of the crisis? Well, I think the first step up here in Canada, there's a special forces unit called JTF2. And we had a tutorial with them about how to deal with extreme stress. And they do like anti-terrorist operations. You know, they're the people that go to Iraq and Afghanistan and like they have to get someone out of a situation. And they said, if you can practice being calm in as crazy a situation as humanly possible, that's one of your biggest tools to get yourself out of it. And actually they, they discussed a breathing technique, which they actually do teach, which is two quick inhales followed by a very long exhale. So it's quite literally, you do that about four or five times and it doesn't matter what situation you're in, you're actually back down to baseline probably within about 30 seconds. So if you're feeling physical anxiety, that's a very effective tool to be able to get yourself back because you have to be focused and you have to be at baseline before you actually talk to your team about a particular situation, right? Like you have to appear like you're in charge, even if you're not, you need to sound like you're in charge But then you could also communicate, at least for my version of it, I communicate directly to my team saying, listen, I'm scared too. But you need to communicate that in a way that calms everyone, if that necessarily makes sense, at least in my opinion. But then you need to really kind of work yourself out of the problem, right? So say to yourself, where are we at now? What damage occurred? How are we going to solve this problem? What's the timeline for solving this problem? 
what's our best estimate of that timeline if you don't have an actual specific time? And then how can we work our way out of this issue? And then it really just boils down to motivation, right? It's like, if you're leading a charge in the other direction and everyone's scared shitless of running in that direction, you've got to be the first person. You've just got to inspire everybody to be able to say, yep, okay, everyone is up till 4 a.m. or until this is solved. I would just figure out what the damage is, figure out how to actually solve for that problem because figuring out the damage and then figuring out how to get out of it are actually two very separate things. And then simply execute on that with extreme enthusiasm. (laughs) Uh, Even if you don't believe it, just try to get, it comes naturally to me because I'm a pretty enthusiastic person, but if you're not like that, just lie to yourself and just say, we're going to get out of this and here's how we're going to get out of it. Even if you don't think that that's going to happen. At least that's my perspective on it. Compared to uh, non-remote crises, what do you think are the key opportunities and threats that you have as a leader in handling a crisis with a remote team versus an on-site team? You know, remote teams are way more difficult to handle crises on than on-premise teams. And that was something that I knew about theoretically, but didn't know about in reality until it happened to us. And it's just an issue of communication, right? Like communication happens slower inside of remote teams. It's unavoidable. You can get a lot more deep work done. You can get better work done faster inside of remote teams, but collaboration is shit. So my co-founder is in Sydney, Australia. I'm in Montreal, Canada. How do we end up coming to a conclusion on a really important issue like how we're going to send this message out to 100,000 users, but the software not working properly. Well, it's difficult. And actually, in reality, what we end up doing is we push for as much asynchronous as humanly possible. So off of our big downtime, we implemented a whole bunch of other protocols and processes inside of the organization to be able to control for those factors in the future and allow autonomous thought and autonomous action inside of the company with the guardrails of process documentation being implemented. So now it's like there's a specific protocol for sending out one of these messages. It has to be approved by two other people inside of the company. And there are certain people that can approve it and can't approve it. And we make sure that there are more than four working at any point inside of the company. Me and Rob are the only two people that have all of the keys towards the company. So literally we have like, we have all the banking information, we have core server access, all that kind of stuff. So I could shut the entire app down if I wanted to. After that crisis, we ended up uh, expanding that out to a team of six because we realized we needed more redundancy. So those types of things are just like things that you learn that you need to be able to solve for, which are the, you know, eventually every black swan event occurs, right? When you look at statistics, it's inevitable. So you just have to start to, you have to work that stuff out and you just have to measure, yeah, well, this is a 2% chance. Maybe we should work on this before the 0.1% chance problem. Yeah. So it's like, that thing you said about black swan events. So a crisis, a future crisis feels like that. It feels like something you can't predict. But 
do you have any sort of, for someone listening to this and they're like, hmm, I want to get prepared for the next crisis. Do you have sort of some patterns you've noticed where to look? What is the next crisis likely to be? What character will it have? No, but that's an interesting exercise to run inside of our company. I think that just generally you should be comfortable being uncomfortable. Always try to practice that as much as possible. How can I get a little bit more uncomfortable about a particular situation? Back when I was single and I was horrible at talking to women, the way that I solved for that was I just started talking to women all the time, everywhere. Coffee shop, if I have not gone up and said hello to a woman that I find attractive within 10 seconds, then, you know, I failed. Do things that make you understand that the worst case scenario that you're thinking of in your mind almost never happens. And once you truly do understand that, and this actually is like very early developmental kind of medulla oblongata type of thinking or processing, your brain always thinks the worst case scenario and it's there to be able to protect against the worst case scenario. But your cerebral cortex understands that this is not true, right? If you talk to a beautiful woman, as an example, probably the worst response I ever got was, hey, I'm really not interested. Maybe that's the first thing that came out of her mouth. Out of probably 500 interactions that I had maybe over a six-month period, the vast majority of those people were very excited to talk to me and wanted to talk to me more, right? So you have to be able to adapt to those situations. We thought 54 hours of downtime, every single customer is going to quit our software. Every single one. Didn't happen. Nowhere close, actually. It was a very small percentage of our customer base ended up leaving us. And so that's something that we obviously never want to test, but you know, the reality is usually a lot more positive than what you're thinking is the worst case scenario. So just be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think the majority of those problems will solve themselves. Like, what if you said tomorrow there was another global lockdown for Safety Wing? I'm sure you're much better prepared than the first wave that happened, right? As you had said before, you've almost completely rebounded and you wouldn't even see that blip on your data. So that's very exciting. And you're just so much stronger as a company because you've gone through this type of crises and you're tougher, right? Like the tougher you get as a company, um, this is why I always tell people don't raise too much money because a lot of people solve problems with money. And then when the real shit hits the fan, it's just like, oh, well, well, we can't solve this with money anymore. I guess we're just not going to do anything. No, that's not the way you do it. You, you, work the problem. You start using critical thinking. You start thinking to yourself, how do I get out of this situation? Can I survive over the next six months? Is it not about growth right now, but it's just survival, you know, that kind of stuff. I love that idea. And I mean, it makes sense. You're not going to be ready for war if you're a naval SEAL, you know, by playing with video games. You know, you have to have a training that makes you tougher and battle-hardened and you can do you that. You have to go and, to a war. Yeah. You have to <laughs> like, you know, if you're a soldier and you've never been in a battle, you're a lot less effective than someone who's been in 20, right? Like yeah. it just, it's just like, oh, well, I'm calm. This has happened before. It's exposure therapy yeah. fundamentally, right? It's just like, 
if you can expose yourself to that type of stress, this is the thing that is just like, it's so frustrating to me when I see this happen. And I think this is a societal thing, but it probably is applicable to entrepreneurship is um, no one wants to be stressed out. Stress is the only way that you get out of situations. Like that's mm. what builds your character. That's what makes you stronger as a person Yeah, is stress repeated. You know, you're not going to be able to squat 350 pounds tomorrow. It's going to take you eight months, mm-hmm. but you got to do it every two days. And you got to go back every two days and put your body in increasing amounts of stress to be able to get to that particular goal. I mean, but no one does that. Well, not very many people do that. The ones that are incredibly successful, and I would probably, I'm part of a mastermind group where it's eight-figure SaaS founders. And one of the things that I found really interesting about that entire group is they're all in fantastic shape. You know, one guy's running like, three Ironmans a year. This other guy is some type of, you know, karate ninja dude. Like, it's just like, everyone's just like fantastically accomplished at some type of physical sport or discipline. And it's because like, it's not that big of a push for them to be able to get to that particular goal Mm -hmm. because they're comfortable with stress and they're okay with discipline. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's just like being disciplined and understanding that exposure to stress is actually positive, not negative. There's only one thing that you've heard throughout this entire podcast. Yeah. Do that one thing. Expose yourself to stress. It is the best thing you can possibly do to be successful. Yeah. As we're now coming out of this and to the end of the podcast and the end of the crisis, a good thing about it is, you know, the effect of what you just said, which is that we have a lot of tough people around, you know, who's been through some stuff and they're, you know, they're now tougher and more ready to face, you know, whatever is coming ahead. Mm-hmm. And I also somewhat more alive. I remember this uh, kind of essay by Paul Graham about the difference between, you know, coders who were founders and in big companies. And he compared it to sort of lions in the wild and lions in zoos mm. and how lions in the wild are just so much more alive. Because even if it's less comfortable to be out in the wild, you know, that's what you, that, you know, that we're supposed to do. And there's something more, you know, epic and adventurous to being out in the wild, you know, instead of being sheltered. I definitely say I'm a wild lion. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great way to end this podcast. Yeah. You know, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you, Liam, and uh, kind of going through your wild mind uh, for a little bit, getting a sneak peek into your uh, crisis management. And uh, so for people who want to learn more about Time Doctor Running Remote, your writings, where would you like to send them? TimeDoctor.com, RunningRemote.com. And if you are interested in consuming all of our content for free, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash running remote. We put all of our talks up for free because as I said before, we really want to get this information out there to absolutely everyone. So if you're interested in that, well, if you're listening to this podcast, it's absolutely the YouTube channel for you. Uh, We talk about this kind of nerdy stuff all day long on there. So I highly recommend uh, Running Remote. I, you know, I was really sad. Uh, I was looking forward to the Austin conference, but uh, Remote Ed was a good substitute and uh, look, looking forward to... You guys make the most high quality stuff, I find, on this topic. So thanks for doing it. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you very much. I'll tell Igor. Thanks for listening. For more insights into building a successful remote company, head to buildingremotely.com. There you will find episode notes, 
articles and book chapters. You can also subscribe to future episodes and recommend guests we should invite. See you in two weeks for the next episode of Building Remotely.